It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm not finished yet. It took me a long time to get here. Both parents have, have spoken with each other and... Uh, and they regret what happened. They've had a frank discussion with each other, and they're, they're both of them are keen to, to now focus on getting back to their county jerseys. That these fellas will get such a shit shock next Saturday evening that we'll put them back in their houses for 10 years. Aidan Rooney may well have been told that this is the final kick. Players are already congratulating one another. Rooney kicks. That's gone wide, and it's all over, and Leitrim are the college champions. John O'Mahony has done it. He did it with his native Mayo, and now he's done it with Leitrim. Just the second time the county has ever won the provincial title. 67 years ago, they last did it. My goodness, what scenes of jubilation we're seeing here. Fantastic scenes, Conan, you'd have to say, at the full-time whistle. Leitrim, Connacht champions for the first time since 1927. Their captain, Decla Darcy, who's coming up on the show being carried off on people's shoulders, proper old school stuff, and talk about winning a Connacht Championship the hard way. Ross Common, Galloway after a replay, and then Mayo to win it. Incredible stuff. Yeah, if you're going to do it, you might as well do it right. It's, it's unbelievable watching that. Like, that does make you pine for the days when, like, the provincial championships mean that much. Yeah. Like, you can tell yeah. that that's, that is football. Like, and, like there's 18,000 people in Hyde Park, and I'd say at least two-thirds of them were from Leitrim. And this is Mayo we're talking about. Like, you know, it's not like a watery support. So um, it was unbelievable. And I'd say they probably almost ex- expected us, like, going into that game. Like, we had a bit of expectation anyway, having beaten, as you say, Ross Common and Galway. Both of them away after a replay with Galway. But, um, ah, it was, it was class to watch Absolutely, Cass, because we know how crazy the Leitrim fans are. Like, I mean, you were in Croke Park for that Division 4 um, league final and they were coming home from America and all sorts of places to, for a Division 4 league final. Yeah, like I, I genuinely, there was a stage where myself and my brother were thinking, are we the only Derry fans here? Like, you know, it was just, it was green and yellow all around. And like, that was like their 25th anniversary. They hadn't been to Croke Park since 1994, so... They were all going up and I remember Sir Paddy McKenna, who we both work with, he's from Leitrim and he showed me his, uh, his Snapchat mat and like you can you can see sort of where all your friends are. It's pretty creepy, but you can see their location and like all of them were on the road up the crew park. It was it was amazing to see it and like yeah, it's like it does, it just it just means more to them. Obviously they hadn't won anything since nineteen twenty seven and yeah and yeah, true. But this 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 was kind of coming. They won an under twenty one uh, Connacht title in ninety one. Then John O'Mahony took them over in ninety three, and they beat Galway and Shum, which was a huge result. And funnily enough, they were very confident coming into this um, this Connacht championship. I was reading that at a pre championship weekend in Castle Blaney, the Leitrim players pooled their money into a pot, went down to the local bookies, and put a wage on winning the ninety four Connacht title at odds of sixteen to one. So we don't know how much uh, money they put into that pot, but it was. <laughs> Fairly, a fairly, a fairly good bet. Funnily enough, we did that with Leash in 2003, or the Leash County Board did. We we were at 16 to one to win Leinster that year, and we actually 
that bet came in. And we did it with Portleash in 2004. Uh, we hadn't won a county title in two years and we were 16 to 1 to win the Leinster Club. And we went on to win the Leinster Club. I wonder how common this is. Oh, that's, that's interesting. Like, because I, I didn't really hear of it before championships. Like, I, I'd hear one off games, obviously, Donegal in 2014. I remember a boy in our team, Scaries, had a bet on to um, beat whoever, and like, we were losing heavily at uh, half time. So he was probably shitting himself. But I, I don't know how often it happens, like, you know, before a championship. That you go and put a you put a bet on that that early, like you yeah. must be well prepared going into it. I wonder is there a psychology there that you're putting a bit of pressure on yourselves? Maybe not pressure, but just we're that confident. You know, we're going to go to these steps. I don't know. Like I'm sure this happens and it, it doesn't come off. There are definitely three examples where it did come off. I wouldn't mind that the the start leader made straight from the throw in. Absolutely dreadful mistake by Seamus Quinn, who won an All Star. That year, it was only his second uh, year. Dreadful, dreadful mistake by him and dreadful mistake by the goalkeeper for not commanding his square and uh, telling him to stay down and get out of his way or whatever. So, goal down immediately. Yeah, and like just no need to do it. I learned it wasn't like Liam McHale was in there on top of him or anything. There was there was two of them there who could have just caught it at their canter and and they just they just panicked like yeah. And uh, it did seem like the first three or four minutes at Mayo were definitely the most confident. Obviously, they'd won the Connacht twice, I think, going into that uh, 94 season. And yeah, like they, like they were they were on top. They won the throw and they put it in there. They got the goal. Leitrim kicked three awful balls away straight away. Like the first the first seven minutes are terrible. Five times the ball goes out over the end line. Like <laughs> when the first seven minutes just kicked too long. Um, and Leitrim were the, the biggest victor, the biggest culprits of that. But um, terrible start, but should have got back into it. Yeah, no, they definitely did. We'll talk about the match now. Uh, we'll talk about the match in part two. I was reading as well, John Amatney obviously was the manager and he was well known for planning and organisation. And he had a fellow called Brendan Harvey, who was a Leitrim man and he lived in Dublin. And he acted as O'Mahony's scout. So he'd never go to Leitrim games because he'd be off watching the opposition. And he used to ring county boards and he'd ask them, opposition county boards, and he'd ask them for the video of the match. And, you know, he'd say it's for a relative over in Australia, a sick relative. And he used to be able to source these videos of Leitrim's opposition that year. So, like, I mean, John O'Matney, definitely ahead of his time when it comes. Like, this is Jimmy McGuinness-esque, sending someone down up a tree to spy on Kerry. <laughs> you know, like, there's not, like, obviously that's class and going to extreme lengths to do it. But there's something nice about that as well, because I think nowadays a lot of managers become obsessed with the other team. Whereas if you have a, another person designated to go do it then they can look after that and they can come back and tell you everything you need to know and you can still focus on your team and and like you know like what, what's the point of having all this information on the other team if you're not going to use it to sort of you know plan how your team are going to expose their weaknesses so it's nice that a manager like John O'Mahony can still focus on Leitrim and somebody else can give him all the the top line points even if he's sitting in a tree or whatever he's doing to get these pieces of information yeah, there's no doubt. And then there was great scenes at the full-time whistle. Declan Darcy, he lifted the cup uh, along with the 1927 captain, Tom Gannon, who was a very yeah. old man at that stage. So that was lovely scenes. Were they presented with the cup out in the middle, out in the field as well? It didn't seem to be up in the stand, I thought. Did you notice that at the end? Yeah, it was a, it was a bit more of a weird setup. But I, I remember the picture of um, Tom Gannon and Declan Darcy. It looked to be a bit more of a stand setup, but I'm not, I'm not too sure. He was actually, he was 95 at the time. 95. Um, so, that was a lovely yeah. photo. Yeah. yeah, and like, sure, obviously there's an unbelievable photo now, like the two, only two Leitrim captains to win the Connacht title. So, yeah, lovely touch. And just it's, just, it's just a moment sort of captured in time. And like that, like, that is important. You're talking about putting bets on. Like this Leitrim team probably this might have been a bit of a golden generation for them and there does come a time for every team you've probably known it yourself like we have to win now you're never going to win and like this was probably it for them like that around that period and if they didn't win a Connacht title they might all be looking back now 25 years later thinking how do we let that one go and just be yeah. nearly men but, but they did it well, that's it. The following year, they were beaten by Galway by a point, and then they went off the off the radar um, completely. Funny enough, Declan Darcy was lucky to be even on the podium lifting the cup because he took an awful kick to the balls by the Mayo number seven. Did you see that karate kick straight yeah. into his ball? Just a just a routine name taken. That's all it was taken. As <laughs> he just jogged off back down the field. The referee was unbelievable. Did you see um, Mickey Quinn got a tick? 
for the tackle on Kevin Cahill. He just came across and oh, just yeah. boxed him straight in the face. And and uh, John Conley, he got no, he didn't even get a tick for his shoulder straight into the face of your man Reynolds, the cornerback for Leitrim. It was um, yeah, different different times, all right. He seemed to have it in for Liam McHale then as well because he got a yellow card for practically nothing for just putting his hand around. I think he'd sent Liam McHale off the the year before. But uh, he gave Liam McHale a, a yellow card for practically nothing. But we leave it there, uh, Colin, because Declan Darcy actually joins us on the line now. Uh, Declan, we're talking about the kick and the balls you took in the second half. They were definitely tougher days back then. Well, normally in them days, you, you might get a down to the head or to the back of the head, but that was a peculiar <laughs> tackle technique by any stretch of the imagination. And... Uh, I certainly, but look, that was part of playing football in them days. You had to take the rough with the tumble, but um, still, <laughs> I still even think it back and it makes me squeamish, all right? <laughs> like, I mean, I think he got a yellow card, but there was no real uh, outrage about it in the commentary. I think it was just, look, that, that's after happening. He got booked and then he off he jogs. I think there was more grief given to me for lying down than there was for the... <laughs> That was that was that was a, you know it took way too long to stay down, but it was very near the end of the game. But God, yeah, it was um, yeah, when you look back on it, it was the second hashtag, all right. But I was looking back on the game um, yesterday. Like I mean, they were the conditions were terrible, and it was a very scrappy first half. I thought, but then and at the end of the first half, you started to kick a little bit, and you were by far the better team then in the second half. Is that fair analysis of it? Yeah, I think that I suppose. The goal went in in the first uh, 60 seconds, so, and in some ways it probably, it was a good thing to happen to us because it startled our thought process and gave us a very narrow focus to to start playing football very quickly because the occasion obviously was a massive occasion for Leitrim. Um, so that kind of got rid of that kind of initial thought process and got everybody to focus on what was needed to be done, and that was to play football. And we started to grind away and get ourselves back into the game I do think that um, considering the other games that we played previous made us very formidable um, and even mentally in our heads we knew we were well capable but we were the much better team than Mayo and it was just a question of could we focus on playing football and I think that goal gave us that opportunity to to narrow our focus and uh, continue to play good football for the rest of the game but it's funny how that Mayo never scored after that in the first half Yeah, and that goal was it did give you an indication of how how dominant we were in the game, but again, um, that occasion was massive, and that's not to be underestimated when weaker teams are trying to achieve something that they've never achieved before. It kind of has a mental weight as well, so um, there was a lot for players to, to handle on that day. Yeah, like you were very confident going into it. We were talking there, you obviously beat Ross Common and Galway, an incredibly tough run to win a kind of title. But it was reading that players went, uh, pulled money into a pot and backed yourselves at 16 to 1 to win the kind of title. Is that true? <laughs> I think that's, um, I don't know. <laughs> it was a certain uh, move to a bookie, but I don't think we were that confident. But we definitely think that 16 to 1, we were well, uh, because the previous seasons, don't forget that we were kind of close enough. We, we felt that we were. We were unfortunate to lose games. We beat Galway previous year in June, which was never been done before a Leitrim team. So um, we had chipped away at things, and we felt that we were kind of there, thereabouts. So yeah, but um, yeah, I don't know. Nice bet, though. In fairness, <laughs> oh, it's a very good, so. a very, a very good bet. <laughs> I, no, yeah, the, reason, but, uh, the, reason I, the reason I was laughing at that is because when Mick O'Dwyer took, took over Leash in 2003, Leash were 16 to 1 to win the Leinster title, and the county board put three grand on it to win 48 grand when we won it. I was just laughing when I was thinking that maybe you did the same thing. No, it was a kind of uh, more bit of crack, I think, than anything else. Than a bit of, uh, but at the same time, you know, any little thing like that does give players a little bit of traction and stuff, but more novelty than anything else. But it was nice at the end, in fairness, a little reward for yeah. everybody. And the rest I'd, say, I'd, I'd say now our 48 grand ended up down in Kerry rather than anywhere else um, in Leeds, but we won't, <laughs> we won't say too much about that. No, well, you, you, you can say that. <laughs> well, come here, even on, on, on the confidence thing, Declan, John O'Matany had booked an open-top bus before the game. So you, you won the match, you went uh, you went back and you got on an open-top bus, so he was fairly confident. 
Well, there was no, like John would be very diligent in his preparation, as everybody would know. And I think we had an insight, and not that I think John wanted to shelter us away from that, but the insight into the Mayo camp wasn't as good as would normally be. And we knew they were fairly fragile. So um, I suppose from John's context, he was covering, as he does and did, um, cover every angle to make sure that we got uh, what we what we required uh, an open top bus probably a little bit extravagant um, <laughs> but at the same time <laughs> and we do remember Mayo organising a homecoming in Castle Bar that kind of came back to bite them but thankfully John was so diligent that um, he tried to hide an open top bus in Carrick and Shannon which I think was a miracle in itself but uh, we didn't see the pre-game so uh uh, we were okay, but we were delighted to see you when we came back to Carrick. There was some fantastic scenes on the, at the final whistle where you're all being carried off. That was par for the course back then, where you'd be carried off on people's shoulders, you know. Like, I mean, then the cup presentation, you lifted the cup with Tom Gannon, who was the captain in 1927. And basically, Leitrim fans going mad. We know they're passionate. We heard the noise even in a Division 4 final um, was it last year. So, like, I mean, I'm, I'm sure it was a crazy, crazy time. It was a crazy time, but I think the one thing that that team did, it bonded, it, it is a very huge, it a big connection with its, its supporters and its county. And Leitrim people are very passionate, and are very passionate about their football. Um, but it gave them a voice, and like, there's no kind of denying it, but Leitrim people probably were put down a little bit in certain regards, not maybe taught highly of in, in many ways, but this team gave them a voice. Um, and there was people that kind of could stand proud for that day, uh, and including the day in Crow Park as well, and just be very proud of what they were about and who they are. And I think that team was given an awful lot of people uh, right throughout the world as we witnessed um, their day. And it was something very, very special. It was much more than a game of football, as I kind of found out uh, afterwards. And even to this day, um, a lot of people coming up to me, it was much more than just a game of football. Um, but it was a magnificent occasion. Um, it's just one of those things that you, you're just fortunate to be part of and to experience because that raw, honest passion yeah. and delight and joy um, is something that the GA just once in a life, once every now and again, gets a little insight into what it means to people. And Leash did it, uh, Westmead, you know, you had Wexford, Limerick, you had a, you know, Clare, you had a vast variety of counties that have experienced it. And when it does happen, it's, there's, there's not, it's priceless. It's really priceless. Yeah, no, there's no doubt. Do you think? Do you think that it's it's kind of missing a little bit now when teams win big matches? The pitch invasions, I suppose, especially in Croke Park. I know it's good for players to do a lap of honour, but the whole pitch invasion and being carried off it. You know, maybe I'm just a traditionalist. That there's something I miss about that. Well, I think it's it's probably is a struggle for us um, because we have such a big connection to our community and our our families. Um, and it is it's intertwined into our games, into our teams. And I suppose when that moment happens, people want to be really close and attached to the players. Um, it's probably something that doesn't really kind of resonate with a lot of other sports, but it's it's very, very close to GA people and that passion. And you can see it even at underage games, just people are going nuts, like they wouldn't normally go nuts because it's just our game, it's our community. And what it is, it's very hard to, to not, like to see that happening but obviously from the health and safety point of view there's obviously huge issues as well so but it, it is a miss I think when players and the more than yourself have experienced that overwhelming a joy and it's, it's engulfed by um, by supporters and family it's just an it's just a lifetime lifetime memory and I suppose for teams that do win now it probably they miss that connection they're separated a little bit from the people that matter to them and it's, even in Crow Park it's you have Stuart there obviously trying to do their job, but they're kind of still very kind of staunching towards letting families in or your kids in. Yeah. It's difficult, difficult. And there's a little bit of a disconnect there. And it's a bit of, bit of a miss, all right. First. You might get it in that Junior B championship final, all right. Win, but <laughs> I don't think you're going to get in Crow Park. <laughs> yeah. Come here, a couple of years later, then you transferred uh, to Dublin because you are a dub. You grew up in Dublin and then you moved to Leitrim. Like, I mean, that must have been a nightmare for it doesn't get any more culty than going to Leitrim, uh, Declan. So there's nothing a dub would hate more than becoming a culty. <laughs> well, look, I had no kind of 
village and I'm from Stanley Mountain. It's a beautiful little village um, in Dublin. Um, and I started playing my football. Great teachers, Terry Leddy and Aidan Sweeney. And I started to see school who gave me great kind of foresight into football and um, in Dublin for which is traditionally kind of rugby territory. So um, it was funny because I'm, I'm, I'm stuck in Dublin for, I'm playing for Clannagale, Gale and going to New Park Comprehensive School which is a uh, Presbyterian uh, dominant school. And then I leave New Park, Black Rock, on a Friday on a bus and I go into a common street and then I'm whisked off down to Leach for the weekend to play GA. <laughs> it was mad. Um, it was just pure. Like when you think about it, the people, the guys, my friends in New Park just couldn't get their heads around what I was doing. They didn't even know where Leach was. They couldn't couldn't fathom why I would do this so it was a bizarre experience for me but the big thing for me obviously going to Leitrim was how people down this particularly all with him um, and it's one of the big strengths that the GEA has is that welcoming piece and they did welcome me with open arms um, and it was just fantastic and it's a great memory again for me to have is that warmth of welcome that the people of Leitrim gave to me when the time I was there. Right. So I thought that you all moved, you moved to Leitrim. You were going back on a on a bus to play. Well, I started basically. I started making when I was sixteen, so I was still in secondary school. So I'd leave New Park around three o'clock, head into Connell Street, and we'd be picked up on a Connell Street and brought down, play a match that evening, and play another match on the Saturday. And then, believe it or not, in the day. You might remember this, but I was able to play a junior and a senior match one after another on the Sunday, <laughs> and then come back, come back to Dublin. So, um, they were making the most out of it, yeah. <laughs> they were getting their their penalty <laughs> there, but uh, uh, recovering sessions right the the thing at the day. But obviously, um, a lot of football, but great cheekers, great memories, great times. But that was it, really, for me. I didn't. Uh, I always travelled. Um, and did you and I would stay in Did you want to play for Leitrim above Dublin then, or were you like, were, was it your parents making you do that? Well, to be honest with you, and even probably to this day, I didn't rank myself as a, a really good footballer. Um, and at that time, I was very small, and I wasn't making any impact, and I had no real mad desire. I loved football, but I wasn't kind of going around saying I wanted to play in inter-county teams I just right. really at that time I wanted to play with with Ahawillan Ahawillan were a very strong club team did Mickey Quinn Frank Smith there's some very special players and I just wanted to be part of that and no more than that but then um, at 17 I got very big very quickly um, and I was actually training I used to train in the mornings with the Irish swimmers and um, they'd be coming in after pool because New Park was where all the Irish swimmers used to train and I'd come in at the back of their swim sessions and I'd join their gym sessions at 7 o'clock in the morning and, and join their gym sessions. And then within that year, I kind of started to physically get bigger. And then all of a sudden, it began to dawn on people that I actually could make an impact. And then my inter-county career took off at 18. Um, but I had no agenda. I never thought that I was any good to play for Dublin or any county team when I was a young right. fellow. So. Right. It just start the spiral, and that, and then all of a sudden it kicked for me, um, and then obviously the story kind of went on and went on. I did, I did notice in that the Connacht final, you in particular, like I mean, it was catch and kick football back then, and that was the style. There's nothing, nothing wrong with that. That was the way it was played. But you very rarely just launched it. You were always looking for that kind of inside of the boot pass, maybe to a wing forward or something. Was that something in your mind that you didn't want to just be driving it and giving it away? Well, don't forget, a lot of my football was probably played as a forward, so it was kind of a forward playing centre-half back. It probably, I kind of slagged Jack McCaffrey, or I similar to him. I, I actually don't mark anybody. <laughs> so I kind of just played, kind of played my own game, um, and it kind of caught people a little bit of a hop because it was different. And they were very traditional to have a centre-half back that was prepared to make runs up the field and to play football. It was kind of alien. There were more... In my day, it was kind of like John Mohan type, who was physically imposing and kind of Duffers, yeah. uh, dom- dominant in his position. And then that wasn't kind of seen as a playmaker to a degree, but I was kind of different. And again, it gave us a different dynamic and it gave me a position of a little bit of freedom to not be man-marked as well. Um, and it allowed me then to function. I had a great relationship with Pat Donner, who was his midfielder, and he would always, well, 
sometimes anyway, at least try and cover for me if I did. There was a kind of a thing that if I went or made a run up to the forest that he would cover my position. So in some ways, it functioned very well for us. And then obviously, I enjoyed playing that role. I thought it was a fantastic position to play. Yeah, come here. I want to ask you about Dublin because I'm said to you that you're a bit like Kaiser Soze with Dublin. People know you're involved, but we never really see you or we never really hear from you. So, like, I mean, I think that was the way you liked it um, when you're with Dublin. Do you miss it? Have you got a load of free time on your hands? Ah, well, I think one thing that kind of caught me a little bit. Um, you know, I played inter county football for 14 years and involved for between under 21s and senior. 11, 12 years, so that's 26, that's that's half my lifetime nearly um, involved at inter-county football, so it was like a second, the same thing as when I retired from football, the feeling of, yeah. you know, not having that structure, not having that routine, very difficult, um, and some people I underestimated with coaches and management staff that don't, aren't involved with teams the following year, and I'm only speaking on behalf of them, maybe that people could a little bit understand that they're kind of they normally they probably tip up and I'm involved with Clannagale front tonight which I'm delighted to be but there is a there's a there's a vacuum there and it, and it's hard to quantify the feeling of um, not being involved um, and particularly with this group of players there were an unbelievable group of players and there's a massive bond within the group um, and a loyalty to each other um, and that I miss greatly because even though I still keep in contact with the lads but not being around them and not being part of their footballing careers now is is quite difficult to, to handle um, in some respects so um, you, know, you know Johnny Cooper for example I, I would have when I started it was kind of underage in Dublin uh, coaching and I would have seen Johnny at 15 so I've actually seen his journey from 15 to his 30s now so that's 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 massive, and a lot of other Gloria Carl. I would have seen a lot of those players evolve, you know, from youth to under twenties to right through um, their adult football, which is a phenomenal journey to be part of. But and it's yeah. something that I kind of miss. But that's just part of life, you know. Yeah, I was actually just that you mentioned Johnny Cooper. There's a good picture of you with your arm around Johnny Cooper. I think it was when the um, five in a row was achieved, and obviously he had the sending off the first day. I didn't re- I didn't picture that kind of journey he would have been on since he was 15. I think that's I think that picture tells an awful lot more than actually you know people look at the picture and see. But there's there's a huge background to that. And obviously that that long journey that. You know, Johnny had, you know, the slight rejection maybe with under Pat Gilroy's because he was captain of the under-21 team. He was destined to be, you know, a star and that was that journey was stopped in his tracks. And for him to reboot himself and get himself back into into the team was massive. And But then that micro piece from the first day, Mark and David Clifford, and just having that little, the preparation pre-first game, kind of giving them, a, putting them on a little bit of an edge that gave him his decision process a little bit, not where it probably should have been. Uh, and what, unlike him, to be fair, uh, in regards to his first game, but then having the the time to reflect and then to adjust and then to put in the performance he did in the second game was just like massively rewarding for him personally, um, for us as coaches but also for the team as well. So that was a huge moment. And um, it was just a little caption there that I think someone caught and it was just perfectly illustrates the care of a coach to a player. Um, and that emotion probably back is kind of, it really reflects that very well. Yeah. One thing I always said about your, your management team is that when the, you drew with Mayo or you drew with Kerry, you were very good to correct the things in the week after the match. Do you know? Like, I mean, like there's no, every management team gets things wrong, you know, in drawing games, but you, you're not, you were never shy about correcting them and you generally got the calls uh, bang on for the replays. Well, sometimes you get things right and sometimes you get things wrong, but obviously if we got time to analyse and operate correctly in the way we functioned, we function very efficiently. So if we got time to review or get something right or to, to, to adjust, we could do that very quickly. We had the players to do it. Um, and the really good thing, what we chased was not um, the winning or losing of a game. We chased our standards. So we would have our own standards of football where we wanted it. And it, it's a great way 
to look at football because it takes away the emotion of whether you lose, you play, or you win. Because sometimes you can equally learn as much in winning as you do in losing or yeah. drawing. And some people miss that bit. So we always went after our standards. So that's where we would review the game with the players individually and collectively as to what that standard, what do we set out to do, achieve? Did we do it? And we really stripped back whether there was a winning or a losing element to it or drawing. It was just how did we function and how can we, if that presented itself again the next day, and how would we function better? And it was all about learning and improving. And the guys had that game intelligence in their locker to be able to see things and accept them and then obviously to evolve. But you have to have players in that bubble um, to understand that and to evolve and to get better from them situations. And I think that's one great credit to this that Dublin team is that they had that ability within them they're game intelligent. They're all very intelligent guys, uh, and they can just deal with stuff during game and pre-game, after game, very, very well. Yeah, I suppose that's a good way to do it because, like, I mean, traditionally, if you score a last second goal to win the game, the performance is seen as good, you know, because you won rather than how is the performance without, you know, winning, drawing, or losing. Well, winning, losing, or drawing, is, they're just emotions. To be honest with you, being really clinical about it. So your application to what you're chasing is obviously uh, performance. And can you perform to a level that at your standards? So obviously each team has different standards of performance that they can achieve. But if they don't get to 8, 9, 10 out of 10 in their performance, they're not going to give themselves possibly a chance to win the game. So instead of chasing the win, you're better off chasing the performance and what does that look like. Um, and that's the key piece and it takes away the emotion particularly pre, during game and after game for players how they think about football because if you get caught up pre-game it's, it's, the game is here with so much at stake here so much to win as opposed to the players they're all they're thinking about is how they're going to function and how they're going to play that's their concern and even during game you know that's why this team you know when there's two minutes on the clock there could be three points down and all they're focusing on is the next play they're not one bit worried whether they're going to win the game or lose the game. They just want to play the next play as best they can. And they understand if they do that, they give themselves a huge chance to function really, really well. And that's probably, that's, that's the bit that we were chasing. Is this this where this famous process word that Jim used uh, came out of? I think I'm getting, starting to understand. <laughs> where, where, <laughs> where the, uh, well, yeah. yeah, sometimes, yeah, Jim, yeah, obviously you guys have loved Jim, but... Um, yeah, he wasn't a million miles off it, to be honest with you. And everybody was kind of thinking, ah, he's going to call it that way with the hat there. And everybody was kind of just saying that. But a lot of it was. And, you know, yeah. when you think about it, you know, the players are in that bubble and they were functioning really, really well. And the exceptional bit about them was, you know, in the White Heat Championship football, well, a lot was at stake. And at any stage, you know, you're talking about two in a row, three in a row, then and then the final. There was a lot of chips on the table. And a lot of pressure when it came to certain games, um, as you've seen, um, and were they able and capable of functioning correctly? And I think a lot has to do with that process piece and what it looked like to them. But don't forget, you know, it might, it might work for this particular group of players, which it did really, really well. It mightn't work for every group of players, but it certainly would gave us huge traction um, and actually been able to perform at the really, really key moments of the games guys didn't lose focus of what they had to do and it was a brilliant brilliant piece and then to see them executing it particularly in the All-Ireland final last year the drawing game not to, when it was a lot at stake and yeah. things not going their way they still had the mindset to still to function really really well Yeah no there's no doubt it was a, that was an incredible uh, last maybe seven or eight minutes of that game where they were just hunting Kerry down with a man down. There's no doubt about that. Come here, talking about Jim Gavin, his decision to step down, did that come as a surprise? It, 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 I don't think he planned to leave it so late in the year to step down. So, so, you know, maybe something happened with him. Did it take you by surprise? Were you planning for 2020? No, no. I've been with Jim since the very start and... Um, 2003 when Tommy Lyons gave us a bit of a, a head and I kind of know him really really well and he's put in a massive massive shift for Dublin um, completely I think people don't under 
they kind of just don't realise the work he has put in. Um, it's been phenomenal. I've seen him in operation, and it's just his drive, his determination, his resilience. He's put in a phenomenal, and that, that in itself takes a toll. He's a young family, similar to myself, and went to the went to the Kerry game, first the Kerry National League game, and it was the first time I was able to bring my kid to a Dublin match. You know, and that's that's like that's when you take stock of my God, this this how much this takes out of your life. Yeah. Um, so I think there's huge parts to that that people don't realise um, when they look in and they see Jim and they see him functioning and then they kind of go why did he step down but there's a whole lot of stuff he's a, he's a pretty important job as well and it kind of there's a lot of things that we would have noticed and Axel Foley down in Munster and you know sometimes sport can overwhelm you with effort and work and uh, you know there is a life to live outside of football as we are witnessing at the moment particularly and uh, and sometimes you just need to take a breath and I think just for Jim's sake I'd say even from the health and personal reasons and everything else it probably it was a time for him to just take a to just take a deep breath and in fairness I don't think anybody could complain in any in any way if there was anything that was delaying him I would think it was more the connection he had with the players right. nothing else and letting go was the hardest part I think of and completely I suppose for most of the management group that was the bit that kind of caught us the most was you know the day that Jim announced it was that was one of the toughest days. Now that was that was hugely tough to be in that room and to experience the emotions and from the players to us and for us to them. It was it was a massive day, and I think we underestimated that. Um, so, but Jim is Jim is just uh, yeah, what a worker, man! Oh man, he puts in some shifts. So, but a lot for him to balance. And I think again, as I said, there's probably no harm just to take a breath. Um, and he had put in a big shift and. He's left his county in a really, really strong position now. Yeah, he's going to be a tough act to follow. There's no doubt about it. The only reason I was wondering is because he, he celebrated in front of the hill after the five in a row. Now, I know it was a five in a row, but it was very un-Jim Gavin-like. And you celebrated and so did J.O. And it looked almost like he brought his father into the presser. And I know from dealing with Jim, you know, he's not usually that relaxed after a match. You know, I was thinking that almost mentally he had gone, we've done it, I'm done. Um, there was two things I think um, our rationale always would have been the players are number one so after a game we certainly didn't want to be seen to be jumping around Crow Park it wasn't our day we've had our day in the sun playing football it was always about the players and the management just always take a step back particularly on game day it's their day it's not your day you know what I mean while we're a part of us it's players are yeah. number one and I think Jim would always and myself would just always take a step back and let them to the front because um, it is their day it's their time and they need to enjoy it and make the most of it and they don't need a management team that's impeding on us um, which we would feel very strongly and also I think last year particularly there was a huge connection within the team there was a lot of stuff going on in the background we had Philly's dad passing away and with John Small's dad was very sick and there was a huge connection within the group and there was a lot of emotion after the game and there was a release of the pressure because probably we didn't want to talk about the five in a row and we didn't want to kind of dig too too deep. But we all knew it was there. It was hanging over us and it was kind of like a monumental kind of weight off our shoulders that had it gone now um, because it was sitting heavy on us um, no matter what anybody says. Um, so there was a huge release there after the game and acknowledgement too as well of a wonderful group of players um, and just for us and we'd be very I certainly <laughs> it's not my form to go up to the hill uh, or gyms anyway that's for sure but it looked it was kind of maybe in the back of our heads that maybe that was it and um, the subconscious thinking we had done our time we'd done our shift and just to say goodbye and thanks very much and great memories yeah, definitely great members. A great way to leave it. Declan, thanks very much for giving us your time there. I've, I've used up enough of it. I'll let you go here. I'll talk to you again. No problem. Thank you. You ready? Let's go. I've had fellas follow me. And not just car clouds, you know what I mean? Mm. It happens, it happens. Yeah. And it does happen. Yeah. But... 
I'll tell you one thing, it's a lonely spot. And the best thing you can do is keep moving. And I thought Connolly looked to be trying to do yeah. that the last time. Yeah. The camera show doesn't look great, yeah. There was um, maybe if they could say it was theatrical or whatever, but like the reality is that there was contact and um I wasn't trying to win a penalty, I was trying to go out and win the ball. You know, actually it's funny, your man Conan, what's his name on the, on your programme like I, I was wondering if he had the same match as me. He was kind of making out Terry, but unlucky to lose like. All right, so Leitrim 12 points, male 2 4. Um, Leitrim, by far the better team in this game. Obviously, we mentioned the early goal already, uh, Conan, and it was obviously the Seamus Quinn mistake was the obvious one. I would call uh, goalkeeper's mistake just as big and Mickey Quinn actually completely lost Fallon he went running to try and close mm. down a ball that it was broken down to and just left Fallon run completely completely true so there's probably three Leitrim players that wouldn't have been too happy with that goal No definitely not and like that ended up being Mayo's only score of the first half you know and I don't even know if you would count that as a, as a Mayo person who scored it really Absolutely. Yeah. just a calamity of errors like um and like yeah, to, to, to go in half nine, not six to to one that up, you would be raging like that's what's keeping Mayo in touch. And they didn't they didn't look like scoring the rest of the half. I think he hit the post twice, but you know one of them was a left footed effort from McHale. Like I I just I just thought that um yeah Leitrim dominated all over like midfield they were, they were better up top and like their defence just completely snuffed the Mayo forward line out and it was just that one wobble. I don't know was it nerves or just a lack of communication. Or just freak luck that let that in, but that was the only time that Mayo looked like scoring, and they didn't even look like scoring. Yeah, to be fair to Seamus Quinn, he completely redeemed himself by being outstanding in the game, and the goalkeeper McHugh uh, made a brilliant save by from Colin McManaman in the second half, and Mickey Quinn was outstanding. So all the three players that made the <laughs> made the mistakes for that all completely uh, redeemed themselves. Like I mean, they brought Mayo brought Leiden um, out as a third midfielder, right for Mayo and. Um, Honeyman uh, followed him out. Mayo played a two-man full forward line with Liam McHale in it, who wasn't the most mobile player, and he wasn't actually fit. Um, he was quoted, looking back on the game, said, to be honest, I hadn't expected the start. I wasn't in good football shape. Decent shape, but not football ready. And all of a sudden, I was in at full forward. Maybe some of the squad were a little surprised that, that um, by that as well. And getting a start in that position after four training sessions might have hurt morale. So I suppose when you paint that kind of a picture, Jack O'Shea, interestingly, who's the Mayo manager, wasn't a greatest idea. Too much, funnily enough, there was too much space for Liam in there. And Seamus Quinn, faster, younger, fitter, just pretty much destroyed him in that first half. Yeah, and like uh, smarter as well. Seamus Quinn just marked him from the front, and like, you know how many times the ball come in, and he was ten yards in front of him. And actually, probably thought it was a bit um, naive of Mayo. Was it? You have Liam McHale in there, who's taller and stronger than, than Seamus Quinn, but they didn't drop anything in on top of him. They didn't put anything in behind. So no. Quinn could afford to stand five meters in front of him, and he just he just cleaned up. And it's funny it was, there was a stage where like Derek Canning kept talking about Quinn looking nervous and having a nightmare start. Yeah. Just he dropped the ball and then he completely dominated the, the rest of the game, you know. So much so that McHale had to be pulled out to midfield in the second half. Yeah, no, he did. He was moved out to midfield and he improved slightly. But you you obviously mentioned uh, the first seven minutes, because I have seven minutes down in my notes as well as dreadful stuff altogether. <laughs> Leitham actually had uh, six wides in the first 15 minutes. Um Conlon had a wide Fergal Reynolds had a, a wide who was the corner back and he wasn't even following Leiden out I don't know what he was doing up there shooting but it, you know let's not kind of overplay the final there was it was very very low on quality in the first half you know up until the very end of the first half where Leitrim kicked two good scores from play and then Leitrim played some better stuff in the second half but the first half was dreadful stuff outside of Declan Darcy looking like a, a, a Rolls-Royce player compared to a lot of yeah. other players on the field. Yeah, Declan Darcy was a real brain and I, I thought yeah. like Noel Moore beside him as well just had such a gorgeous right foot so every so often he just pinged his class pass maybe 30 metres like a like a torpedo into someone's chest he sort of wrapped his foot around it a lot and you know he had a nice a nice swing, swing of it but there was a period yeah we used to said before half time and then maybe what 10-15 minutes after it where Leitrim yeah. played some quality stuff and it probably started with with that Aidan Rooney score like in the, in the first half where Paul Kieran played this amazing long ball into Conlon and Liam Conlon like would win a lot of tough ball 
but often he didn't have runners off him or whatever. But this time Aidan Rooney had looped out around and just and just swung one over off the top of his foot, and that sort of started a bit of a a purple patch for Leitrim, I thought, and they kept it going right into the second half when Mayo obviously tried to put down a bit of a marker to start, but it was no good because Leitrim were were on it. Yeah, Paul Kenny, in fairness to him, had a very good score in the first half. He was one of the bright sparks, along with Darcy. Um, he had a very good score um, on the run, and then he had a very good score in the second half as well, where he punted, um, punted it on. I think punted the point. I think he was fouled in the first half as well after a very good run. So I suppose Declan Darcy breaking forward. One thing, and I mentioned that Declan Darcy in the interview, he never drove ball. This was the one thing I thought was very obvious about about him in that that was the football back then where you just get it down the field. He wasn't doing that. All of his all of the ball he got, he broke forward with it or he gave a nice little inside of the foot pass, you know, to Parra Kenny or to somebody who was who was breaking out for the ball. He looked like he was more ten years ahead of his time. Yeah. And was it so obvious? Like when he had the ball, he was always looking up. You, like you, you don't often see that back then where a player's stopping to scan the pitch to see what's yeah. happening and he just looked to see what, and then like he would <laughs> it was almost like you know he, he was in slow motion like and he could see these tackles coming in from the side as he scanned the pitch and he just evade them and keep looking and then pick that pass and yeah I just think we always talk about these players you have that bit more time like and he was he was the ideal number six just sort of controlling things from back there yeah, no, it was. Just you'd have to say, like, I mean, Mayo were a dreadful team back then. Like, uh, to go 40 minutes between a fluke goal and your second score, like, I mean, it's just dreadful. Dreadful, dreadful uh, stuff. Like, I mean, Jack O'Shea, like I said, was the manager. He didn't have a good time as a manager, but, like, James Horan came on the scene the following year. Noel Kennelly came on the scene the following year. Morris Sherlin came on the scene in 96. David Brady came on the scene in 96. Kenneth Mortimer in 95. Then John Casey and Kieran MacDonald came on. So like you're, you're almost, from their All-Ireland team in 1996, this 94 was a dreadful team, you know, when you, <laughs> count up the, when you count up the amount of players that had to come on to it to make it a good team. Yeah, and like that first score since the fluke at the start you mentioned was from a free, which was like a very soft one on Lee McHale, which I thought maybe the ref would take a bit of sympathy because he had just been treating him harshly all game. But um, and then like I don't think they scored again for another twenty minutes after that, and that was Kieran McDonald who came on, and that was the first score from play. And I actually would count that as the first score from play. I don't know if I would count the first of the goals as a, a score from play. But um, did you not think it was strange then, like you know, when you saw what they brought in the last fifteen minutes that? McDonald and John Casey maybe weren't on the pitch a bit longer or from the start because they were yeah it, it brought they were different. very young they were very young you know? like you're talking about these lads being about 18, 19 at that age like John Casey played well he he kind of linked it up a bit he didn't kick it away you know he kept it kind of ticking over and moving like I mean but they, like and and McDonald looked like he was on another level to the other players I do take your point like Christ Almighty. Some of the, some of the, even Kevin O'Neill was massively disappointed. He's an all star. He was dreadful on the day. Yeah, I and mean, he got a, he got the nice goal, which was a palm, obviously from a rebound, but it was a, it was well taken. But um, yeah, like I just, I just thought that Leitrim were so much on top when those boys came on. They were at least winning it, taking men on. They, they made the Leitrim boys look a bit more fallible. But until then, there was nothing like that. So I was like, how, how did it last so long without these boys being on? Yeah, no, it doesn't make any sense. So you're right, it was the two or three minutes, maybe five minutes before halftime where they got three points and then the first 15 minutes, uh, you know, of the second half, go seven or eight ahead and then made it a little bit nervous on themselves. But like, I mean, in fairness, if you weren't so nervous about Leitrim getting over the line, you'd say they're well in control of this game. Yeah, yeah. Like they, like they completely control the mind. I think at that stage, you're always going to have... You're always going to have a nervous finish, aren't you? Right? Like they still, they still ended up seeing it out by two points in the end. But like the way, like it was 1927, it hadn't been the final since 77. So I don't think it matters how much they were going to be in control of that game. It was going to be some sort of nerves that, that brought it back. Like you know, that that goal, this well, sorry, the penalty that was given, that sort of summed it up. It's like how can you have been on top so much defensively and just let somebody I think it was John Casey just roam inside completely free you know whereas they weren't doing anything like that or making any mistakes like that until the first second obviously yeah and Kieran MacDonald actually scored that goal that usually in, in the current uh, 
game that would be, he would have been just given that goal you know because like I mean it, it was just seconds after it fell from Casey's uh, Casey's hands so that would have been one two for <laughs> Kieran McDonald in about ten minutes like it'd be incredible <laughs> incredible stuff but yeah the penalty was a brilliant save then by McHugh one one thing McHugh really impressed me was his very last kick out he went short which was on her television in 1994 he went short mm-hmm. to Honeyman. And this was when Leitrim were just, uh, there was only two points in it. So instead of going to midfield with a 50-50, he went short to Honeyman. And then it went up to Mickey Quinn, um, to Barney Breen for a free. And then that was the last kick of the game. It was missed. Um, it was missed in the end by Rooney. But that was uh, some serious composure by, by both McHugh, by Honeyman, and by Quinn, and by Barney Breen at the very end. Yeah, well, that's the whole thing, isn't it? You have to go and take it. You're not going to be handed a a championship title. And, like, it was strange because McHugh had just been putting his foot through it to great effect all game. And, like, he just sort of got used to seeing him jumping through the ball as he's kicking it and then just pinged his little pass. How many times was Honeyman on the ball and blocking down men? And, like, that was a tour de force from him. Oh, stop. I have him down in my performance of the weekend. An absolute warrior is how you describe him. Don't don't uh, don't use up any material on Honeyman because he's uh, <laughs> he's definitely going to be mentioned. He was great. And like, you know, a, a, a real a, a real stalwart um, on the Mayo team. Did you notice there was no celebration from uh, John Matney at the final whistle? It was a pure Jim Gavin. Uh, just <laughs> no emotion. No nothing. Not even a smile. Right. Maybe he was maybe he was ahead of his time as well. And we didn't realize. <laughs> maybe that's who's inspired uh, Jim Gavin into into <laughs> the meticulous planning. You know the, the the no celebration, all about the players. I thought that was very impressive um, from Declan Darcy there talking about you know the reason himself and Jim just didn't ever get involved after matches or get involved in celebrations because they wouldn't ever want to take it away. It's not that they. It's no, they've done nothing compared to the players. It's all about the players, and for having a manager out running around and taking away from the players, they wouldn't be their style at all. And I suppose when you when you when you hear it explained like that, you know it's it sounds sounds impressive rather than giving out about it. So it does all come back to John O'Mahony. Declan Darcy learned this off O'Mahony, then gave it to Jim Gavin. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and that's yeah, that's and a new style of management. And in a funny way, Jim Gavin took it to such levels that his underreaction overshadowed the players. Um, anyway, so Jim, Jim just uh, <laughs> he just went a little bit too too far with it. I suppose Liam McHale did make a bit of a difference when he went out the field. You're right, and the and the substitutions, John Casey, um, uh, Kieran McDonald, Mayo had a better shape about them and were the better team in the last 15 minutes. But like, I mean. That's only because Leach had probably got a little bit worried and sat back under lead, you know, rather than good Mayo play. Ah, yeah, definitely did. And like, you know, Darcy, who always knew where to be, he was just dropping a little bit deeper, whereas he was cutting out balls from the right positions the last time, but he was dropping deeper because I think Kieran and Donoghue and Mickey Quinn and Parry Kenny even were starting to come a bit deeper as well. It was just, they were just trying to get all hands at the pump. But, but he, like, throughout most of the game, what I thought was class and didn't think I would see it in... 1994 is that the three man full forward line of Rooney, McGlynn and Conlon they were sort of operating on a two man full forward line and one person going out and taking turns and yeah, that, that's not like, yeah that's class to see that yeah Rooney was probably drifting out a little bit more than the other two yeah I think so but I think I think uh, Colin McGlynn was like almost in the Bobby Firmino role where he was just taking ball and laying off people and coming back out and you know, he was very very unselfish yeah geez, he had a dreadful dreadful wide in the second half he like, did I mean, Senior inter-county level, like, that that wasn't, you know, that was just not good enough. There's no point in saying anything else. <laughs> You're more uh, unforgiving than I am. <laughs> well, I think I've been, I think I've been pretty fair to Leitrim. Like, there's no point in talking nonsense about these matches. The first half was some horrific football in it. But again, the best football over the course of the game was played by Leitrim, and they by far deserved to win the game. Now, how good that Leitrim team were is you know is another question like how good Connacht football was at that time is another question because they were they were well beaten by Dublin um, then in the All Ireland semi final. Yeah, no, that, that's that's fair enough. Um, I just like it's it's funny like the fact that they did do it the right way though it, it means that there's no there's no asterisk at least beside their title. It's not like you know they beat Sligo and New York and whatever and won a Connacht title. They, they did beat everybody at the time. They were 
you know, undisputed Connacht, the, the kingpins of, of Connacht, I suppose. Well, I would go so far as to say it's the hardest Connacht championship ever won because Roscommon, Mayo and Galway can't ever beat Roscommon, Mayo and Galway to win a Connacht title, right? <laughs> so yeah. the only other team that can win a Connacht title like that is Sligo. I think they actually have done that. They have done that under Kevin Walsh in more recent more recent memories, I think, to beat the big three. But like to beat the big three, to only ever win two Connacht titles, to wait for 67 or whatever years from 1927 to 1994, and then to beat those three. And Galway after a replay, so four games against the big three in, in the province. Like, I mean, no wonder it goes down as, you know, kind of, it's a game that you always remember. Clare 92, Leitrim 94, they were the big ones. I suppose Leitrim and Westmead then were two big ones. Um, in Leinster, you know, of the minnows, uh, Offaly would have had that in the 80s then as well in Leinster, of minnows coming out of nowhere to win a Leinster title or a provincial title. And sadly, we're probably, we'll never see that again. No, but it's like, you know, it's a bit sad in hindsight, but um, last year they were actually thinking that getting to Crew Park, uh, getting out of Division 4, that it was an omen for the Connacht Championship in 2019 because they had Ross Common first. And if they beat right. them, they would have to beat Mayo and then beat Galway. <laughs> they thought it was all set up to happen again. <laughs> really getting carried away. Right, listen, yeah. we'll come back and we'll talk uh, performance of the weekend. Is the little dink fist pass from a crowded area into that D, we're at home by where Bernard, I've talked to Bernard about Bernard's very patient. But this little dink ball, you know the one in a crowded area where it's a fist pass, the weight is taken over, hits the ground, and it bounces into a fella's chest, and there's consternation then in around the D and around that area. Watch for this in the semis in the final. Do you know the one I'm talking about? That little fisted ball that's just bound in a, in a crowded area, but it gets to the, the yeah, body. You, you have said it three times. It's in around it. But you're looking at me. You're <laughs> looking well, at me. Well, a crowded area, is it? You're <laughs> looking at me with such a confused, a confused head in you. It's like I was talking about you trying to get a point in coppers or something there. In a crowded area. Yeah. Watch for it. So performance of the weekend, the first nomination I have down here is Mickey Quinn. Um, his second point was absolutely outrageous. Uh, he had no right as a midfielder slash wing forward with his back to goals from way out on the right-hand side with a man outside him, Conan. You're, you're getting the curly finger if this goes wide. That's basically what, what anyone's saying. Shooting with your back to the goals from an angle you'd never score, and it went over the point or over the bar. <laughs> and I suppose from his point of view, like I mean, you're thinking Leitrim's name is on it when a point like that goes over. He was sort of laughing as well after he scored. He was coming back out having a joke with someone. I don't know, maybe it was like you shouldn't have shot from there or whatever. But um, I think when you're Mickey Quinn and you're in your 17th season with Leitrim, you're probably allowed to have a shot from there. And especially when it goes over, you know, nobody's going to say anything. That was uh. That was unbelievable. I think that's probably like even watching it, even when you Leitrim had won it, you're watching it going, okay, this is it now. Like the crowd were were going mad at that stage. They knew it was their day, and you said name was on the trophy. Yeah, he was 17 years. Jerk Hanning was saying in the commentary, 17 yeah. years playing with Leitrim. He'd only seven wins, and three of them came um, under John O'Mahony in the in the previous two years. So he had four. He had four wins in sixteen year, in in sorry in four wins in fifteen years before John O'Mahony took over. Uh, <laughs> talking about soldiering for not for nothing for no reward, and that was back that was back when you lose a first round and you're gone for a year, just coming back the following year, going through the whole thing again. But sure, maybe that was easier because you got a longer winter, <laughs> you got more time off. Uh, so well, we we could be heading for a champ a knockout championship this uh, summer. Which I tell you one thing: after all the talk of championship structures, I'd be really, really looking forward to a straight knockout. There'd be a bit of nostalgia about it, and there'd be that doggy dog threat kind of championship intensity that you can never recreate when you have a second chance. Yeah, well, like this is it. Like I ended up going down a, a rabbit hole last night. So I watched this game, and then like I went to the highlights. Ninety four down, down won the All Ireland, and I went to the highlights of Derry v Down because Derry were All Ireland champions in ninety three, and they played in the first round. But then Derry are out. But even then, like the, the like there's eighteen thousand there for that Connacht championship. You look at the attendances for the rest of the Connacht championship. There's loads of people there at the Derry v Down game. Loads of people, and you don't normally see that at a home Derry match. But I was like, why is that happening? Obviously, they're a good team, but. It is because this is it. It's either you're going on to the next round or you're out. And it, yeah. it, it did have that bit more of a, 
I feel to them not falling in the uh, championship restructure talk, but <laughs> it would definitely it would definitely be good as a one-off where you can bring it in every so often. Just to yeah, mix it up. The, the, it, it, just as a matter of interest, is that Down Derry match on YouTube? It's on one of the highlights, so it's like a nine-minute highlight package. Ah, okay. It's worth it at some game. Like, uh, All right, okay, because that was meant to be an absolute classic of a game altogether as well. Joe Honeyman, we have to mention him. Unbelievable man to block a, block a, block a ball down. He was just all over. <laughs> and, and, and the decision to send him out, you know, like, I mean, I guess it worked out. But, like, I mean, if this was the current um, play... Uh, an opposition's half forward would be doing a bit of work and Joe Honeyman would be in standing in front of um, Lee McHale yeah no but he, he made himself completely useful just like and like he just just a complete knack like you know we uh, I know we talked about him before but like he, he's almost like the Leitrim Iron Curtain like you know where nothing was getting past and he, he was because he, was, he wasn't just standing in front of Lee McHale he was able to make himself useful wherever they needed him you know it wasn't just sweeping where he was told to sweep it was just like if you need me over here, I'm going to double up over there. And as you say, the amount of blocks he got in, the amount of strong right-handed tackles he was just hitting boys with, he looks, he looks like he'd feel it the next day as he played against them. Yeah, definitely would. And like him a proper hard, hardy whore cornerback. I've come across yeah. a good few of them, definitely, definitely at club level. Like there was a lot of blocking down in the game in general, I thought. Like, I mean, again, it was easier block down back then because you kind of knew a good long kick was coming. Well, yeah, you knew you knew a long time was coming. You knew they were always going forward. Like you know, you weren't. It wasn't like you weren't allowed to go sideways or back, but it wasn't in your thinking. You got the ball, you turned, and you, you tried to get it further forward, and so that made it easier to defend. I think because like you didn't have boys running out on the loop or you know popping yeah. it off or going on decoy runs or anything like that. Boys got the ball, and like as you said, like a lot like Declan Darcy would pick passes. But a lot of them were telegraphing big long balls into the forward line and that made it easier to block out around the middle, especially, I think. Yeah. When is the last time you've seen a block down in around the midfield or in, or in around the half-forward line? It just doesn't happen in the modern game. The only time you see a block down in a modern game is, is a, a, an attempted point. Yeah, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't happen because, like... No, yeah, you, you don't it, kick it. <laughs> yeah, you, <laughs> I was going to say you're not allowed to kick it when you're under pressure, but yeah, a lot of people aren't allowed to kick it. Just, but um, yeah, you just you're not allowed to sort of risk giving the ball away. So if you're under any sort of pressure, you pop it off to somebody who's under a bit less pressure. But also the boys around the middle are being told to drop off because if you're defending, then I mean, you know, what's the point of defending around the middle when you can defend where's the, the most dangerous? You know, like that's that's what's happening, unfortunately. So it's harder to see those block downs. Yeah, yeah, maybe did. Declan Darcy, we've we've mentioned enough of him now. He's kind of playing back in the in the in the quarterback role and and popping a few passes left and right. It was interesting for him to to say that he knew because he played a lot in the forwards and he knew what kind of ball that they liked, you know, which made sense. And then he kind of, you know, laughing about breaking forward and not marking anybody, just a bit like Jack McCaffrey. Like I mean, Declan Darcy strikes me as a very very intelligent man about Gaelic football and I could I can I'd imagine he had a huge impact behind the scenes um, with that with that Dublin team based off the interview I did with him a very impressive uh, fella yeah and like I, I actually think that he's a, a good example as well of just the difference in organization between the two teams because like yeah the way he plays football is one of them his position and the, like no one went to go and went to hold he, he sat back in front of McHale a few times and, and cut out the ball but but then even like from the the long range frees he hit them, Maiden Rooney hit a closer in free. Just having that down, like it just it, the difference between them and Mayo, like Kevin O'Neill was hitting a, a free kick from the left hand side on the oh, thirty meter line yeah. off the ground. You know, and it was like what he like somebody just picked that up with the right foot and put it over and he missed it of course, like you know, and that just yeah. wouldn't have happened, I don't think, and and then did you notice John Casey won a free and he's a right footer and John Casey was lining up to take it and Kevin O'Neill took it quickly ahead of John Casey. Um, yeah, he ran in. Ran in just to almost say it up, well, this is my job, you're not taking that. You know that kind of way because that, that was a well kickable free for John Casey and he fancied it. And then what happened was somebody played a hand pass to Kevin Stoughton who was just completely bottled up then and it was like, what was the point of that? Like, just take I the don't shot. They were a shambles. Mayo are a complete shambles. There's no doubt about that. But then we did list out all the players that you know that they were that they were missing. Um, Padraig Kenny probably is the last one I want to mention from from Mayo. Um, two great points. One, 
or from Leitrim rather, two great uh, points, one freeze, just buzzed around. And in the first half, when there wasn't much quality, he he um, he he was providing it to the point where the Mayo cornerback Rowan was switched out on him to try and um, quieten him down. Yeah, like he was a real action man, wasn't he? Like he got that big score to start when they didn't look like scoring. Mayo were on top. The only time Mayo were on top, really, and a bit of the end. And then he made the run, big burst and run, who won a free for the second score. Like, you know, so yeah. when Leitrim were down and nervous, he was the one who stood up. And yeah, him himself and Mickey Quinn were just like prototype half forwards. I suppose. They, they won their own ball. They ran with it. They won breaking ball. Like, you know, they were just tough players who were fit and, and, and good at football. Yeah, no, exactly. Uh, on the Mayo side, very difficult. You couldn't, you couldn't nominate anyone. Oh, Seamus Quinn as well was very good um, the whole way through. Um, any 50-50 ball was kicked in, he was out in front. But like you said, he played uh, Lee McHale. Probably it was a lovely uh, scalp for Seamus Quinn to get an unfit Lee McHale. Yeah, <laughs> yeah in a way, he still went back of his head, so it was a trophy for him. Oh yeah, that's exactly what you want. You want that, especially I suppose in in the Burn Cup, you want an unfit superstar <laughs> where you can actually tear into them. Um, I suppose yeah, like I said for Mayo, no nominations whatsoever, none, zero from the team that started. Um, Kieran McDonald, John Casey, I would say from the two subs that came in. Um, you know, we know I'm not going to put John Casey anywhere near Kieran McDonald's uh, level. Kieran McDonald, as a player who looked, he only looked about 17 or 18, like with the hair parted in the middle. He looked bizarre, um, you know, but he scored two points and scored it. Let's be honest, he scored that goal as well. And, you know, in the short period of time, it's always interesting watching a superstar start off like that and how he was able to look much better than everybody else in the limited time he had on the field. Yeah, and you're right, probably, because I'm saying, like, oh, they should have started him, but, like, hindsight spent a lot into that as well, where I know that he went on to be one of the best players ever, <laughs> you know, so if yeah. I was just watching that back then, he does, it does look really young, and you probably would just think that was a good impact from a good sub, you know, where you wouldn't be thinking, why wouldn't you play here at McDonald's, but you know what happened after this. Yeah, exactly. Who am I going to give uh, performance the weekend? I think it has to go to Joe Honeyman, who was uh, a, a terrier, tenacious uh, uh, defender who was out of his comfort zone out around midfield, but still managed to turn the midfield zone into a corner back zone. <laughs> like, I mean, however, however, however he did that, you know, blocking lads down like he would do in the corner, he turned an area that shouldn't have been comfortable for him into his domain and he dominated it and I suppose even winning that last kick out even though he didn't really have to win it but making himself available for it and uh, getting it up the field for the last three and that was the end of the game I think Joe Honeyman deserves his performance of the weekend what do you think? Yeah I don't think I can top that description like that's just uh... Perfect. You got you got him bang on for a cornerback who just wants to suck the joy out of forwards. Like he just brought that to wherever he went, and and yeah, that was midfield. That's where he brought it. Exactly right. So Joe Honeyman, congratulations, and that's all we've time for today. We'll be back on Thursday, and we'll we'll have a look at another match. We'll talk to you then. Good luck. I'm not finished yet. It took me a long time to get here. Both players have, have spoken with each other and, uh, and they regret what happened. They've had a frank discussion with each other and they're, they're both of them are keen to, to now focus on getting back to their county jerseys. But these fellas, they get such a shit shock next Saturday evening that we put them back in their houses for 10 years. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.